Hello, I'm Kyle Caldwell, and this is On The Money, a weekly look how to get the best out of your savings and investments. Today, we're going to be doing something slightly different. We're going to split this episode into two parts within the same episode to tackle a listener question. And that question from Linda is, how do I know whether or not to sell an investment that is underperforming? It's a great question. And to tackle it for the first half of this episode, I'm joined by friends of the pod, Sam Benstead, to cover off funds and investment trusts. Then in the second section, to name some pointers on when it may be time to sell an individual stock that's underperforming, I'll be bringing in Lee Wilde, Interactive Investors Head of Equity Strategy. Before we tackle the question, I think it's worth stating that it is harder to sell than buy. I mean, that's certainly been my experience as a DIY investor for over 10 years. As I've spoken about on the podcast before, there was a period during the pandemic when Scottish Mortgage had a really stellar period of performance for 12 to 18 months. At one point, its share price was up over 100%. In hindsight, I should have converted some of those profits into real profits rather than the paper profits they were at the time. But to be honest, I probably got a bit too greasy and a bit too complacent about it. And I also didn't have a need to sell. There wasn't a specific reason why I would sell. As mentioned, in hindsight, I probably should have sold and reinvested that money into parts of my portfolio that were not performing as well at the time that I expected over the long term to recover. Some lessons in terms of when to sell can be drawn from behavioural finance biases. So these biases, they cause investors to make irrational investment decisions based on emotion. And as we've covered in a previous episode of the podcast, it was episode 22, we covered behavioural investing pitfalls. I thought it was a fascinating um, conversation I had with a fund manager who uses behavioural biases as part of his investment process. So do check that out. So Sam, while it's important that you know investors, they think long term, they remain disciplined over time, avoid panic selling in times of stock market turbulence, it's also important to not simply buy and hold with all investments, but in relation to funds and investment trusts, if you do buy and hold, say if you bought today and then I'd look at how the portfolio is performing in 30 years time, you could be in for a bit of a surprise and not necessarily a good one. So Sam, could you run through the main reasons why investors should at least a couple of times a year check how their funds are performing? Yeah, thanks, Carl. So I think with funds, there's a bit of a interpretation that you can just own them and let the fund manager pick winners and avoid losers and they'll adapt their approach as the market changes. So you can just basically buy and forget. But that's not always the case. You're trusting a fund manager to manage your money. And if the fund manager leaves, then you really should consider what you do with your holding in that fund. So a new team might come in, they might change the investment approach. You might want to follow that fund manager to another company where they're likely to continue managing money. Lots of questions are important to consider once the fund manager announces they're leaving. The fund could also run into trouble. And if you're not paying attention, you could get burnt. So a recent example is the Home REIT Investment Trust, where they failed to collect a lot of rent, there were allegations of fraud, and the share price just tanked. But if you were paying a lot of attention, you could have actually saved yourself potentially and got out before the bottom of the market. And I think another thing which is perhaps a bit underrated when investing in funds is that your circumstances just might change as well. So starting out on your investment journey, you might have allocated 
you know, 20%, whatever it is to a, to a growth style of, of investment fund. But actually, as you near retirement, you might want to be a bit more defensive. In retirement, you definitely want to be more defensive. So actually selling some of the more aggressive funds or selling some more defensive funds at the start of your journey is an important consideration as well. Because as you age, your goals often change as well. As well as actively managed funds, I think you know the same applies for passively managed funds as well. So index funds or exchange traded funds, ETFs. I mean, obviously, there's not a human being making active stock picking selections for these funds because they are passively managed. They're tracking the up and down fortunes of a specific index. But it is worth still keeping an eye on the performance of passive funds because there are occasions when the composition of the index that the passive fund is tracking changes. We saw that in the summer this year with the um, NASDAQ 100. It reduced its weightings to the big tech stocks that have been driving the performance of that index, particularly over the short term. It's done that in order to reduce risk, but that now means that that index, for you know, rightly or wrongly, it has less exposure now to the so-called Magnificent Seven US tech stocks. And also there have been occasions when um, thematic ETFs have changed the way that they're tracking that particular theme or gaining exposure to that theme. Themes can broaden, and that means that then the index fund or the ETF will then have a broader exposure to that theme. So that's, again, that's something else to it. Look out for it. It might necessarily be the same investment as it was when you originally started investing. In terms of when a fund or an investment trust is underperforming, it's particularly a tough call on whether to keep on investing, double down, or cut your losses when you get off to a bad start. And the reason why is because percentage losses require bigger percentage gains to recover. So if you're down 10%, you need an 11% return to break even. And you know if, you, if it's a more sizable loss of, say, you're down 33%, you need a gain from that point of 50% just to get back to even. So I think it's a very tough call when you get off to a bad start with an investment that's disappointing. So when a fund is not performing well, what are the main things that investors should consider? Well, I think the first point to make is that you need to take a step back and try and understand why the fund is underperforming. If it's because the region it invests in is underperforming or its investment style is out of favour, then you may be inclined to forgive a period of subdued short-term performance. And actually, you might actually think it's actually a good time to add more exposure to that fund if the region's out of favour or the style's out of favour, if you think the prospects going forward are more positive than it was when you originally invested in it and you think it may improve over time. However, say, for instance, you're investing in a fund that follows the value style of investing and it's been a very favourable market backdrop for that style and it is still underperformed, then... For me, that's an easier decision to make that it might be time to hit the sell button if it's underperformed, like for like value funds. It's important to compare the performance of a fund with other similar funds rather than just looking at the wider sector because you might necessarily be comparing apples with apples when you look at the entire sector that a fund is sitting in. And another thing to consider is to, as Sam mentioned, you've got to continually ask yourself why you originally invested in that fund or investment trust. And is it still fulfilling the role that you intended it to fulfill? For example, if you invested in a fund for a certain amount of income and that income is no longer being delivered, you know, for instance, if, say, it's a fund or an investment trust that, for whatever reason, it's notably reduced the amount of income it's paying to investors, 
then that may be an easy decision to consider selling the fund on that basis. Sam, you mentioned the investment process. It's very important, isn't it, that retail investors assess whether the fund manager is still sticking to his or her knitting? Absolutely. Investment managers will have a an area of competence that they'll be experts in one style of investing. And that might be technology shares or healthcare shares or a style like a value investment approach or a growth investment approach. And you're allocating money to a fund to plug a gap in your portfolio. And you know that might be value or, or healthcare, whatever it is, you want that fund to keep delivering on the reason that you invested in it in the first place. If the manager changes what they're doing, not only are they likely to be less skilled at that new investment area, but the reason you're invested is no longer true. So it affects the balance of your portfolio more generally. A really big example of this was Neil Woodford when his Woodford Equity Income Fund imploded. So he made his name as a fund manager investing in blue chip companies and avoiding toxic areas of the market. So I think he avoided finance shares in the run up to the 2008 financial crisis. So he was a really good investor and he had a great reputation and a great track record, but he mainly invested in large UK shares. When he launched his own company, and it was the Woodford Equity Income Fund. He wasn't working for Invesco anymore. He actually branched out into biotech stocks and unlisted equities. So he started doing something that he wasn't really an expert in. And that was part of the problem. That was part of the reason for his downfall. And that should have been a sign for investors that they should consider their holding, basically. So if a fund manager moves away from what they built their reputation around, it's a warning sign. And as well as you know, looking at your investments that are not performing well and considering what to do next, it's also important to, when an investment does well, to review it and consider taking some profits. And one way that um, investors can do this, Sam, is through rebalancing, which you know, in hindsight, I should have done with Scottish Mortgage a couple of years ago. Definitely. So there are a few reasons to take profits from a fund. As you say, Kyle, rebalancing is a really important thing. You want to kind of, you want to keep the the risk profile of your portfolio steady. You want to be nice and evenly invested. So if your if your growth allocation, say to Scottish Mortgage, had doubled in a year and everything else had say gone flat, it's not a realistic example, but it's just hypothetical. Then your allocation to growth shares could also double. So you're taking more risk than than you want to. And if you'd been aware of that. You could have, you know, you could have sold some of your Scottish mortgage shares. That would have been a sign to sell it and keep hold of that balance in the portfolio. It's hard to do because when things go up, you expect them to keep going up. You get greedy. You probably are more likely to actually invest more money into the funds or ETFs or shares that are that are increasing in in value. So some really interesting research this week from Morningstar, which I covered, and they basically showed that investors in funds tend to chase the best performing funds. And this is particularly dangerous when investing in thematic funds or funds that just own shares from a single region. And they found things like clean energy and China funds and India funds actually performed very well. And then investors put more money into them. And so actually they missed out on on most of the gains. It just shows our our human biases are are very dangerous and, and they work against us. And when things go up, we tend to follow the herd and try and put more money in. And one of the conclusions from that research for for the active retail investor is if one of these more niche concentrated funds shoots up in value, I think Scottish Mortgage doubled in in 2020. Um, I know the iShares Global Clean Energy ETF did, that was up 140%. 
if you see that, um, if you see a sector go up so much, it's probably a sign that it's going to have a few difficult years ahead. So that's something I'd be aware of. Let's go into more detail with a point you made earlier, Sam, about you know when a fund manager leaves or retires, that's certainly a, a yellow flag event. It's the time to give the fund a review to you know, make sure that you're happy with the, the new fund manager or fund managers going forward. In terms of fund management retirements, there's been a number of them recently, including Bruce Stout of Murray International. So he is going to be retiring next summer. And so is John Bennett, who oversees several European funds for Janice Henderson. And prior to that, UK equity fund manager Richard Buxton, who worked for Jupiter, he announced that he'll be retiring and he's retired at the end of this summer. Before then, last year, there was a number of other retirements, including, of course, Scottish Mortgage's long-standing fund manager, James Anderson, who retired at the end of last April. So in terms of when a fund manager jumps ship to a rival firm or retires, in terms of the practical considerations that retail investors should consider and weigh up, I think one of the main ones is key person risk. I think that's very important to assess. You know, I think you need to think about has this one fund manager been highly influential in calling all the shots or has it been more of a team approach? If it's more of a team approach, you're likely to see a couple of named co-managers on the fund or some deputy fund managers. But, you know, if it's one figurehead at the top, then a fund manager leaving for another firm or retiring is arguably more of a blow. So that's one of the most important things to bear in mind. Another point to make is, you know, as, as circling back to what Sam mentioned earlier, will the way the fund or investment trust invests change? You know, is the new fund manager going to stick to the current investment process or in an attempt to put their own stamp on the fund, are they going to ring the changes? Of course, you know, if, if a new fund manager comes in and makes lots of changes, that's not necessarily a bad move. You know, it could lead to improved performance, but the risk is that it's no longer the fund that you wanted it to do or the fund that you originally bought. And if that's the case, then maybe it is time to call it a day. In terms of succession planning, if a fund manager leaves to join a rival firm, then this could come out of the blue. Whereas if it's a retirement, then all things being equal, the fund management company will have more time to prepare for that. Sam, in terms of succession planning, what do you think are the main things to look out for? I think you want a manager to remain at the fund who is actively managing money, who is a named portfolio manager on the strategy rather than just a research analyst. If they're a deputy manager, I think that's okay. If they're a co-manager, I think that's excellent and shouldn't concern you too much. So if the decisions have been made by a team before and one part of the team is remaining and they've got the same research team behind them, I don't think that should worry you too much. If the fund manager is leaving and part of the succession plan is that some of the analysts get promoted and maybe you might see an analyst promoted just a few months before the fund manager leaves, they've probably been tipped off that this manager's heading for the exit. They're probably maybe rushing their succession plan. And although that new manager may be excellent, it's a different job if you're picking shares and making those decisions by yourself rather than just feeding research into the fund manager. 
An example of this has been Scottish Mortgage, which has now got Tom Slater as the lead manager. And he's got a deputy, a new person called Lawrence Burns. But Tom was co-manager of the fund for seven years alongside James Anderson. Before that, he was a deputy manager for five years. So it's all very well organized. The succession planning is in place. When James Anderson left, he wasn't leaving an empty fund. Tom Slater was there as a co-manager already with lots of experience. And he continued as co-manager. And generally speaking, when it's a retirement, the handover process is typically six months to a year. It's not normally shorter than that, because um, as mentioned, you have got more time to plan for retirement rather than a fund manager leaving to get a new job at another fund management company. Um, you know, I've, I've seen instances in the past where a fund manager or fund managers have moved team, they've moved desks um, over to the new fund. They may do well, they may, and you know, they may do a good job on that new fund. But it will give me greater confidence if, if they've been part of the same fund for a number of years. Been, you know, They know the investment process inside and out. And as Sam mentioned, they've actually been running money as one of the fund managers on that fund. For the second half of the podcast, I'm joined by Lee Wilde to cover practical pointers on whether or not to sell an individual share that's underperforming. So Lee, me and Sam have just been talking about the things to bear in mind when a fund or an investment trust is out of form. I'm assuming there's a fair bit of crossover with individual companies, including as a starting point, trying to get to grips with why that particular stock is underperforming. Yeah, indeed, Carl. I mean, it's often underperformance that forces investors to ask the question, should I sell? So underperformance comes in uh, in a few guises. Uh, the most brutal is the profits warning. Always trigger a sharp decline in share price, often for good reason. It's a pricing in the bad news. So there might be what's called a dead cat bounce when shares are initially oversold and that attracts buyers. But uh, what happens after that very much depends on the nature of the problem. So uh, if you believe it's a, a one-off hit, you might decide to hang on and bet on a recovery. But there's a, a saying in the city that the first cut is the cheapest. So profit warnings often come in threes. Cutting your losses early and moving on eliminates the risk of further warnings and share price declines. Alternatively, the underperformance might have been long and drawn out and not surprising. So this might be down to a more general market downturn, but I mean, if it's a more company specific, it's underperforming peers, there could be serious issues with the business and, and how it's being run. Investors need to ask themselves also if the rationale they had for buying the shares in the first place still holds true. So if it does, and all that's changed is share price, then there's often sort of no reason to sell. However, the fundamentals of the business have changed. And by fundamentals, we mean the key reasons you bought the stock in the first place. Then a more serious reassessments required. And there's also leadership changes. So that's another time to reassess an investment. So this could mean a change in senior management at the company, much like if a star manager leaves a fund. If the founder's leaving or a long-serving manager who's overseen outperformance heads for the exit, then it can knock confidence. You want the company to have a compelling succession plan. If they have that, it can be worth giving the new face a chance to prove themselves. If they don't, and the shares have already done well, it may be time to bank profits and move on. So in terms of some of the points that you've just made there, Lee, I mean, you can't prepare for a founder leaving. That can sometimes be you know, well-planned or it could come out with the blue. But I mean, some of the other things that you've mentioned, like profits disappointing or earnings also disappointing, are there ways that private investors can spot those things happening before they do actually happen? 
I mean, it is difficult to know precisely how things are going to go before the professional investors. I mean, those guys have got direct access to management, run sophisticated valuation models. But there are some things that everyone can do quite easily. The first is to check the company report. So the, the half year and annual results specifically, look for a section usually called something like principal risks or principal risks and uncertainties. So you do a search for that. So it can be a scary read. It's usually an honest assessment of what could go wrong, though. Perhaps too honest. Uh, there's normally no need to worry, but it can be useful to know what the risks are so that you can perhaps act if you spot any danger signs, usually on a macro level. It's based on your perception of that risk, as I say, the, the list of things that could potentially go wrong can look like a horror story. But it's these are the things that could happen, not necessarily the things that will happen. So bear that in mind. So if you know what could potentially go wrong with the business, then you can look for the telltale signs in subsequent statements. So in terms of company performance, so always read those results statements for signs that oh, it's not well. I mean, it, it might be that a business that's been doing well has run out of steam. Uh, that can be a signal to, uh, to take profits. Or it might be that a business is a perennial underperformer and that management are presenting case for growth that isn't compelling. And in terms of having more of a sell discipline, one thing that private investors can do is having price targets in place. Yeah, it can be sensible, very sensible having a price target when you buy a stock. At least it sets out a clear objective. Things can change, though. I mean, it might go better than expected and you decide you weren't optimistic enough. The risk is that something goes wrong before the target is hit and you miss out by a penny or two. It's trying to strip out that. You need to be disciplined and say, well, I've set this target, then that's the target I'm after. But you also have to have a little bit of flex, I think, when you're talking about price targets. You don't want to miss out by a couple of pennies. If it makes you sleep better at night, getting out perhaps a couple of uh, pennies shy of your target, then that's great. But you know, the risk is obviously you hang on, wait for those extra two pennies. They never come and the share price falls back. There's another city saying it's leaving something for the next person. Another about it never being wrong to take a profit. So... Uh, basically saying that you're never going to sell out at the top. So as long as you're happy with the profit you have made, um, sell up and move on. Another thing you can do in order to try and take the emotion out of investing is you can put a stop loss order in place. Yeah, again, it's a good idea if you're disciplined and you don't keep moving your price level. You can move your price level as, as the uh, with stop losses, as the, the price increases, you increase your stop loss in line with that. That's a, that's a sensible approach, but it might be that you keep it where it is. But you've also got to set your stop loss at the right level. Now, that for me, that's where technical analysis can help. I know not everyone's a fan, but it can be useful for identifying levels of, of support. So you wouldn't want to set your stop loss right at a support level necessarily or certainly above it. You'd likely set it just below because that might indicate the share price breaks below that support level it's an indicator that the shares remain in a downtrend and could go much further below that. So cutting your, your losses then seems to be a, a, or can be a sensible approach. So that's, that's how I would, I would approach stop losses. I also wanted to finally cover off, you know, especially income seeking investors, you know, they're investing in dividend paying companies. When a company cuts its dividend, is that an automatic sell in your view? Or, you know, you may actually view, it means obviously it's a case by case basis, some investors may actually view that as a potential buying opportunity if it's a sign that you know the business was over distributing and now going forward that dividend is on a more sustainable footing that's right i mean it's for the most part dividend cuts are bad news especially for income investors 
but they normally happen because there's a financial problem and the company can't afford to pay its shareholders. So it might be that the cut's expected um, and management, again, has been sort of pragmatic and put the business in a better financial position. So uh, uh, that improves prospects, you know, lays the foundation for improved performance in the, the months and years ahead. In that respect, it could be a positive, but yet normally dividend cuts are treated sort of uh, badly. And so companies with super high yields, they cut the dividend. They can still offer generous payout. Again, going back to not always sell signal, but usually a good indicator on most occasions that something's wrong. Well, thanks to Sam and to Lee. And thank you for listening to this episode of On The Money. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating or a review and follow the show in your podcast app. And if you get a chance, tell a friend about it too. You can join the conversation, ask questions and tell us what you would like to talk about via email on otm at ii.co.uk. In the meantime, you can find more information and practical pointers on how to get the most out of your investments on the Interactive Investor website at ii.co.uk. See you next week.